This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have a special guest. His name is Rex Sorgatz, and I have to just share a little background. I began my blog in the late 90s on Yahoo Geocities, a now defunct property of Yahoo, uh, which in and of itself is who knows what the hell is happening with that. And early in my blogging career, I came across a, uh, a blog called Famoculus, and I always found it filled with uh, unique and interesting tidbits. There were a run of things I was looking at back then, uh, Kotki, Famoculus, um, just a handful of uh, Colossal, uh, the Boing Boing. There was just a run of, of different sites that were just collecting interesting, eclectic, unusual things. Back when the internet was small enough that one person or a, a small group of people could do that and find some really, really fascinating things. Um, as it turns out, Rex uh, not only was a blogger, but he was a television producer, digital media consultant, um, and a writer. And I've followed his career over the years and, and have always enjoyed his work. Uh, we talk about the genesis of the book, The Encyclopedia of Misinformation, which is really quite fascinating. And if you are at all interested in web history, in in how and why memes catch on on the internet, whether they're true or false, how they spread, uh, I think you will find this to be a fascinating conversation. So with no further ado, my interview of Rex Sorgatz. My special guest today is Rex Sorgatz. He is somebody I have been reading for several centuries now. He is the author of the Encyclopedia of Misinformation. See what I did there? Slipped a little misinformation. And he has quite uh, quite a bio. In addition to being a, a product designer, a creative technologist, he is the founder of the New York media consultancy, Kinda Sorta Media, and he is the author of a book which may have the longest subtitle I've ever seen. The book is The Encyclopedia of Misinformation, a compendium of imitations, spoofs, delusions, simulations, counterfeits, imposters, illusions, confabulations, skullduggery, fraud, pseudoscience, propaganda, hoaxes, flimflam, pranks, hornswoggle, conspiracy, and miscellaneous fakery. Rex Orgatz, welcome to Bloomberg. It is wonderful to be here. So I have to start with your bio, which begins, Rex Sorgatz is a professional Orson Welles impersonator and a third-generation lycanthrope who is responsible for rebranding contrails as chemtrails. Obviously, none of that is true. Tell us about your uh, <laughs> your background. Uh, I, I wrote that bio for my. It's on my Amazon page because I start. I started to write a traditional bio, and then I was like, "Well, this is a book about misinformation. I should really just make a spoof of the whole idea." And and I have to point out that having read you over the years, first at Famoculus, then at Wired, you're very much into um, recursive. Uh, fractals and regressions, where there is an element of a meta-reflection on 
the underlying subject. For example, you many people do year, year-end lists. Mm-hmm. That doesn't work for you. You do a list of lists, and yeah. we'll talk about that later. But the your self-description as a hoax is perfectly consistent with not just the book, but your own brand of recursive um, writing. Fair, yeah. fair statement? Yeah, for sure. Um, there's a... There's even an element in the book where I do I return to this trope a lot where I state a fact and then throw a footnote in there and then and then undermine the fact itself. Uh-huh. Like I have this tendency to kind of not my writing. I, I don't I don't trust writing that asserts itself in some sort of like overly um, uh, unbiased intellectual way that that just is so firm and has no sense of doubt about itself. Right. And so I think that I'm always. I think everything I write is expressing, um, is making a point, but is like willing to say, oh, I'm not really sure about this. And I think that that's, that we live in a media climate where that's, a, I think, an especially important trait. The certitude amongst people who have no basis for certitude seems to be the model on the 24-hour news channels, regardless of political leaning. Is that a fair, fair Yeah, statement? I mean, I, I, I don't know if I, last time I saw somebody on cable news and we'll include all networks there say get asked a question and say i don't know know, that just never happens and i i always start with i don't know or i am not sure let me try to work this problem out i've got a few ideas here different opposing ways to think about it and i think that 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 whole notion has really disappeared from media climate to be honest it gets said very rarely and it's really hilarious to watch the anchor just suddenly it looks like a, a fast-driving car that suddenly hits a patch of oil. It's spinning all over the place. It's all over the ice. They don't know how to deal with someone who says, oh, that's outside of my expertise. I, I can't. <laughs> I, I really have nothing to add on that. Their, their heads explode. Yes, and uh, writing a book about misinformation, which is not exactly a topic that like I had known a ton about, the, at least the social science part of it. Mm-hmm. I, I know the cultural part about it, like the part, the, the kind of P.T. Barnum-esque qualities of our society and culture. But I had to do an immense amount of research into um, all of the research that's going on right now around, oh, fake news and what trusting the media and all of that stuff. So, so that's, that was all brand new to me. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about fake news uh, and we'll talk about how the media has kind of painted itself into this corner, let let's stay with your background a little bit. Mm-hmm. You you do a lot of different things. You're a designer, and you were part of a team that won the Pulitzer Prize. Assuming that that's not misinformation, <laughs> tell us tell us about that. Uh, this is a story from a long time ago. Um, geez, 21 years ago, I think. Now we do uh, our homework here. At yeah. So in 1997. I was living in North Dakota, Grand Forks, North Dakota, and this little town of 50,000 people suffered the greatest um, disaster of the 20th century for really? an American city. Well, in the, if you quantify it in the sense of people evacuated, right. the entire town had to be evacuated. 100% of the town out. Yeah, and it was uh, a flood. And um, Clinton was still president, and he actually came to town and cried on national television. Really? It was like... It was kind of the Katrina before its time, not as severe as Katrina, obviously, but it was. Uh, so all fifty thousand people are out. Were there any fatalities? Or there's just- interestingly zero zero fatalities. But the the reason it became a, such a strange national story is that in the middle of this flood, in which like six feet of water in downtown, it's like underwater. Uh-huh. Uh, in the middle of this flood, a fire starts, 
And it seems like the ultimate sort of reckoning of hell Insult kind of moment. Insult injury, for sure. Yes. And it creates this paradox where there's all of this water, but there's a fire, and the fire can't be put out because the fire hydrants are, are underwater. <laughs> and so there, uh, there are pictures out there of firemen kind of diving into the water to try to connect their hoses to the fire hydrants. And then they finally get them connected, and the, the, there's no the water, water pressure, pressure yeah. and so not, and none of it works. <laughs> and uh, and I, the, the reason I um, kind of became a notable person around the event was I was a person who decided not to leave. Uh, and I was staying in my apartment because I lived next door to the Grand Forks Herald, the newspaper uh, in Grand Forks, which back then was owned by Knight Ritter. There's a company uh-huh. that is no longer around. Um, and it was working on the newspaper and trying to still get it out. We managed to – eventually that newspaper burned down. Um and I had to be rescued from my apartment in the middle of this flood fire, uh, and we won a Pulitzer Prize that year. Did, I hope you took lots of photographs from that vantage point. You know, that was pre-iPhone or right. any kind of thing like that, and so none. I have zero photos. I actually I just went back last summer or this this a few weeks ago, and uh, the the town has recovered. There's there are now walls all over protecting it from the river coming though, uh, and there's pictures all over town um, commemorating the event. Uh, and it was a it was a fascinating thing, and it was kind of in a weird. This is weird to say, but I lost everything I ever owned. But it was sort of lucky because, um, it, you know, we won the Pulitzer. I became known for it. Um, I was the internet guy in an era which there was only one internet. Of, yeah, right. and it was I was the webmaster, um, which was <laughs> a very valuable title back then, and uh, it allowed me to get out. Really, I didn't really have many other. It was hard to foresee how I was going to get out of North Dakota, and this was like a quick. Ooh, I, this, I, knew, I got I got talent now. Tragedy <laughs> to Exodus. I get it. Let's talk about this book because I find it to be fascinating. That's why I wanted to have you on the show to to go over this. Hey, we're in an era of alternative facts, so given that, why do we need an encyclopedia of misinformation? Yeah, I thought it, I thought it was a good idea to try to compile. All of the stuff out there that is not just misleading information, but is about the theories behind it and how it evolves and where it comes from. Mm-hmm. And that's really what the book is. Like, I think sometimes people see the, the title and they think, oh, this is going to be a list of hoaxes. Or, you know, it's going to be like, here's a bunch of conspiracies. And there's a little bit of that in right. there. But really, it's about the theory. Um, here's a big scary word. The epistemology mm-hmm. of... Uh, of conspiracies, hoaxes, and these uh, and and media, and and ultimately, I think I think of it as a book about trust, like who, what sources, yeah, who, what sources of tr- do you trust today? And um, I don't say this outright, but I think it becomes implicitly clear that that's eroding. Like our mm-hmm. institutions are eroding, and our faith in in uh, knowledge bases is going. And and I try to deal with that in a playful way. I I would point out that the erosion of trust in institutions is a feature and not a bug because if the population doesn't trust the institutions, they're more likely to trust the grifters and con men who are trying to get over. Fair fair statement? Yeah, it's fascinating. I, I think that one of the... Th- I didn't talk about this in the book, but it's, I'm going to write about this at some point. I'm fascinated by the evolution of media literacy because I feel like I grew up in a time when people were told, always distrust what you're, the information you're given and, and root out its source and 
um, look look where it came from. And you, it was like this idea that information should be immediately distrusted. And I think that sort of made sense in an era of kind of monolithic information and mm-hmm. and a kind of a uh, a state where we we built uh, knowledge bases that no one wanted to contradict. And now I believe that idea of constantly questioning has become so rampant and spread wildly on the internet, particularly through places like Reddit, that now we're left in this place where we don't trust anything. And like, like there are people out there who don't believe that Charlemagne existed. You know, like whole parts (laughs) of history are lies. The rise of the the Flat Earth Society is just amazing these days. The Flat Earth thing is probably the best example. Like, I didn't know how to write about that. That's a good example of something I didn't know how to write about in the book because what am I going to do? Am I going to, like, debunk the Flat Earthers? That just sounds boring. Like, I'm going to just... Or am I going to make fun of them? Or what what am I going to do with it? And so what I chose to do with that entry is I, I thought, well... Uh, what's interesting about this is that it's emerging right now, but really it's emerging because people have, there's this idea out there that historically there are all these times in history where people thought the earth was flat. And I went back and looked at this. Turns out not to be the case. It turns out not to be true at all. Like you have to go back way back, like to Homer, to <laughs> find out people who actually believe the earth was flat. There was no one during Columbus's time that thought right. the earth was flat. Uh, even was, the Greeks understood the earth the wasn't Greek, flat. Aristotle and Plato knew it was round. Like, uh, I mean, even church figures. I mean, the people who persecuted Galileo believed the earth was round. They just didn't believe that the earth was not the center of the universe. Like, And Dante thought the earth was round because if you drilled a hole into the earth and, and you got to the inferno, you could come out the other side, you know? And so this idea was like a, it evolved because it, in the 19th century, someone came up with the idea that I can use this as a cudgel to like describe a certain kind of part of society that thinks that they're they're so stupid they think the earth is flat and it was kind of an accident of intellectualism that this evolved huh. and um so hey like I, I, that that was the difficulty of this book is like how do i write about these things that are they're kind of interesting but i don't really want to like be a book of debunking because that's right. boring so that raises the next question how new is fake news yeah when you when you write a book like this, you end up becoming a little bit weary with history, uh, especially like there's a lot of 19th century stuff in here. Um, and that was just an era of just pure chicanery and uh, and manipulation. Um, the golden age of grifters. Yeah, it truly was. And uh, if you look at someone like P.T. Barnum um, or just like all of the people spreading medical hoaxes at the time you really kind of go maybe today isn't that bad maybe the internet (laughs) isn't that bad and so i i can't i can't draw exact distinctions i i would say that um something is coming up right now on the internet that feels like the uh the change that started to happen in the early 19th century where um, people found ways to game the system. And it, so I feel like we're kind of returning to an era right now. So so let's talk about the shifting Overton window. Mm-hmm. Explain for listeners exactly what that is. 
the Overton window is a fascinating little idea um, developed by a researcher who he just kind of came up with the term. And it's for essentially it's what are the topics that we allow into public discourse? What is safe for us to discuss? Mm -hmm. And like and. Public discourse, I mean, kind of the media, I guess I'd say. But but general debate within a society, that's, yeah. that's acceptable. Yeah, that, that if you brought it up at a party, no one would, like, think you're crazy or whatever. And it is a fascinating thing to watch, right? Like, things definitely move in and out of the Over, Overton window. Um, and just for a little context, the... The term comes from watching, I believe the the phrase, the description used was watching a parade through a window, and if you shift your position, you're seeing a different part of the parade from a different angle. Is that... Yes. So, so the Overton window refers to how, at different times and different angles, we are tolerating or discussing different topics. Is that is that yeah. the metaphor? Yeah, and you could just like name something like... Um... Oh, legalized marijuana. Like, mm -hmm. that's not something that was, like, readily discussed maybe 10 years ago. For sure not 25 years ago. I'm right. sure, that, sure there was a contingent of the population who believed in it, but it wasn't a mainstream idea. Or even just um, gay marriage, like, was not a, a, a real mainstream idea until it accelerated very quickly mm -hmm. um, in recent years. But it, the term more now is used to apply to uh, mostly about how the right, the far right, the alt-right, whatever we want to call that group, um, has entered, has has pushed into um, public consciousness ideas that otherwise recently would have been considered outsider. Um, extreme views on immigration, for instance. Um, I mean, just open up Reddit now. Go, go to the Donald on Reddit, and you'll just see, like, this rampant conversation about things that we previously just sort of thought were outside of discourse mm -hmm. and now are allowed in and we have to take seriously. And so th there's a kind of a good quality to it, right? Because like our mind should always be open-minded to any kind of new ideas. But at the same time, it's like we get, we're, we're starting to take things seriously that otherwise we're like, oh, th that's for the freaks and the outsiders. And now we have to deal with debunking. Like Flat Earth is a good example. Like, you know, we like now we have to we have to spend time on that topic. Right. You mentioned Reddit twice, but you're not referring to things like Twitter or Facebook. Are they quantitatively or qualitatively different than the various subreddits that really go so far into the weeds? I mean, I sometimes get asked, like, which is the most dangerous one mm -hmm. and i really kind of juggle around which social network am i most pro most troubled by um reddit is where uh the audience is smaller still substantial but smaller but it's really where ideas c get root it's you might consider it the base uh -huh. of the of fringe ideas people right? who used to be lone wolves in their town find like-minded individuals who are similarly insane yes and basically allows them to reinforce their that, whatever the mania of the moment happens to be and f they find similar people and then they they build propaganda around it they start memes they make pictures they kind of they become self-edified by having other people to talk through the ideas of the thing. To go back to Flat Earth, like Reddit on Flat Earth is fascinating because people will come in and kind of contradict things and they'll have to like go, 
oh, I know how to evolve this theory further. So it's like a, a breeding ground for like furthering these these thoughts. Um, and then eventually what happens is that stuff bubbles up to Facebook and mm-hmm. that's when it goes mainstream. And then all of a sudden your grandma's like being presented with images of Pepe the Frog. And I, <laughs> and I think within that group, it sort of self-legitimizes what should really be a fringe set of ideas. Yeah, I, I don't... I, I It really should be, and... I, it's de- the internet is definitely causing this weird fracturing thing right now where I I don't uh, I feel like our knowledge we used to have like a set of facts that we based everybody our understanding right. yeah and now that thing is fracturing all over the place and um, I, I'm not optimistic about how that turns out See, in the coming- uh, so I'm going to be a little selfish here mm-hmm. and I'm going to say optimistically if you're a high-functioning idiot, if you believe things that are patently, demonstrably untrue, we're just seeing the the impact of that in things like elections or what have you. But over the course of our lifetime, when you believe in things that are patently untrue and then you go out into the world, there will eventually be negative consequences, whether that's um, personally, politically, professionally, economically. But if you believe the world is flat or if you believe you can walk through that wall, well, act on it and bad stuff is going to happen. So I'm hoping that eventually Darwin's yeah. revenge sort of <laughs> filters this out. I, well, I you, just, you're trusting like the socialization process to, to, maybe. Uh, to adjust these people. Or, and or, I, or, or mortality. One or the other. <laughs> those are those are the two I'm I'm rooting for. Um, and I I think that there's a case to be made that socialization eventually wins. That if these people, like I'll call it a different group, the kind of men's rights activists on <laughs> on Reddit. Yeah. If eventually those 19 year old dudes got to go find jobs. And is that all it, they are? A nineteen-year-old dudes in, I, well, in there's the some, basement. There's a, unfortunately some forty-five-year-olds dudes out there too. But uh, it's a lot of it's a lot of young men disenchanted with their uh, either cultural or economic situation. And eventually, they're going to come to the conclusion that um, actually maybe it's better for me economically not to have these really like horrible views about uh, half of the globe and. That I need to adapt just to to like survive in this society because my views are going to be considered outra if I don't. I hope that's true. The problem is, at some point, do these people like find like minded people at work? You know. And, well, they certainly right. have found them on the internet. Yes. And what we noticed with with some of the neo Nazi marches and other stuff, people have been identifying those folks and they've been getting fired. It turns out right. that being a Nazi. And then being public about it is not a great career move. Yeah, I, and, and I think that the, there is a corrective quality out there. And when those things happen, it does make me go, "Oh wait, maybe maybe I shouldn't be in such a panic about this. Maybe we actually are more uh, we have str- we have stronger belief systems that are that are being more corrective to these these kind of ideas, and that it's just like a weird spurt in time, and that." This always happens every once in a while. We're, it's a we're transitional. Get over it. yeah. It's a messy transition until we sort of get to whatever's uh, on the other side. Yeah, and I mean, I, like this goes back to the fir- very first thing I said is like uh, people seldom say I don't know. Um, there's a case where I don't know. I really, <laughs> I really don't know if I should be panicking about this moment 
time in history, or if it's kind of a rhyming thing that happens every once in a while. And on any given day, I I could change my view on this. Like some days I just feel like, oh, we've lost it. We re- <laughs> like no one. There is no truth. Every the, the world is asunder. The, the, uh, the, no one trusts anyone. If only there was an encyclopedia of misinformation <laughs> that could help us through these challenging times. I hope that that's that's a good uh, selling point for the book. Thank you. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about uh, your early days as what you've described as a proto blogger. And I first came to know you a long time ago as the author of Femoculus. Mm-hmm. A thing that eats itself. Explain yes. explain what Famoculus is and was and why you decided to launch it. Uh, it. It's really easy to say that it was a blog before blogs. There was a right, – right before, I guess, the year 2000, there were a handful of people who were making personal web blogs, which was the term at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, there's probably about 100 people who were either writing um, – short entries about things that had happened in their life, a little more like a diary, or there were blogs that were just linking to stuff. And Uh I was in the latter category. I was fascinated by this emerging culture online that was coming about. Um, You know, this is long before, long, long before Facebook, but even before Reddit and and things like that. So, uh, but we, there was a community of a hundred, a couple hundred people who were, um, just find on the internet all day and finding stuff and wanting to share it with other people right. and then had comments below and who knew that that would actually become what the internet is today which is effectively right. here's a link and here's a bunch of comments below but i think that's what blogging started off as is like there's something that's interesting and it could be uh, an article it could be a painting it could be whatever and people would talk below it and that was there was a discussion that happened so Let's talk about the list of lists. So, mm-hmm. And again, I, I referenced earlier you have this sort of recursive meta, which makes sense for something that eats itself, something that consumes itself as a, uh, a, a source of sustenance. So everybody does these end-of-year lists. These are the best books. These are the best movies. Here's the best whatever. And you were so tickled by it, you started a... Thing and I want to say it really began right after Thanksgiving each year, yep. more or less. the The list of lists, one one list ruled them all. Yes, it was it, when I started. It was relatively easy. Basically, I had a Google search alert for best of year or best of two thousand six or whatever, uh-huh. and uh, and there was also a submission form on the site so people could send me stuff or just I looked around a lot. And all I did is accumulate them, list them. And I didn't even annotate them. I just said, here's the list. I put it in a category. And, uh, and then I just... Music, film, books, yes. sport, whatever it was. And then I, it somehow took off. But when I started it, there was pro- it was easy to do when I started it. It was probably 200 lists. Like, uh-huh. uh, it's funny now. Like now there's easily 200 lists that are best cars of the year. You know what I mean? Really? Like now, now it would be thousands of lists. Well, and- there's also the, there's all these – I don't want to say scam because they're not just outright scams. But there are all these affiliate marketing sites yeah. where it's like dishwasherreviews.com or yeah. I'm just making that up. But it's these really narrow niche things and all they want to do is send you to Amazon and earn a, a – an affiliate fee yes, or wherever else they're earning an affiliate fee. And so when you go search for best anything, 
these things just populate Google on a pretty. Yeah. And I've played with with uh, what is it, DuckDuckGo and Bing and some of the other search engines, and you still end up seeing these things. There's no avoiding them. Yeah, and. It's the list itself is fascinating. How it became an industry. I think f- the first place you started to see it become really popular was BuzzFeed, mm-hmm. right? There was they were ridiculed early on for making listicles. Listicles, Even, right? Very popular though, but people, but the media community didn't like them. But they were wildly popular because it's not the, prose. It's just oh, you're interested in X. Here's eighty. X's and have fun with it. And there was some something. There was a perception that there was an inelegance to it, and uh, when in fact it's like that's actually just what people wanted, right? Um, and then the next evolution of that are are the uh, the creation of sites like Wirecutter and those sites that are like here are the best refrigerators, here are the best whatever, and they're using affiliate links on top of it. And that was um, back in the day. That was things like um, CNET. And yes. I'm trying to remember the other Ziff Davis property name is escaping me. But it was a run of tech-focused sites, and it was the best computers, the best laptops, the best monitors. But there was some journalistic credibility behind that. I don't know if you get that anymore. Yeah. Um, I think there's a there's a handful of honest attempts at it. Um like the wire cutter is owned by the New York Times, that's and that's an honest publication mm-hmm. if you're uh there's something weird about the wire cutter though if you're like i want the best um drip coffee maker it you type that best drip coffee maker into google you're gonna get wire cutters almost everything now you're gonna get wire really and now it's like ah do i trust this thing that's like always the answer now like it's it's inevitably always a hundred percent going to be uh this one site and uh there's like no competition and so, so I'm using Bing instead of Google just for test purposes. The first thing that comes up is coffeemakerpicks.com. Oh, wow. And they give you, and then coffeemakerpicks is the next one. So these are these bestdigs.com. These are the sort of, con- finally, halfway down the page is Consumer Reports, Epicurious, Comparaboo, Amazon, Pete's. Which is kind of interesting. One of the things that Google, by the way, I could tell you what the best drip coffee maker is without this. But one of the things <laughs> that Google does is it sort of personalizes your search based on sites you've gone to before right. and things you like. And so you, every now and then it helps to open up a, I don't know what your browser of choice is, but if you open up, so I use Chrome, but if I'll, I'll open up Safari or Firefox where I'm not logged in. And I don't normally Google over there. And I'll get a very different run of things than what I get on Chrome where I live. Right. Which is which is kind of fascinating that even search has become biased and skewed in some ways. Yeah. And, I mean, the entry in the book that covers that topic is uh, the filter bubble, um, which is like you're, you've posed an interesting scenario where you could type for best coffee maker and – I could type, I could search for it, and we'd maybe have different results based upon the based upon Google having knowledge about us and presenting what we it thinks would be better. Um, sort of a fascinating little conundrum, right? Maybe maybe that is true. Maybe there is a there is no best coffee maker. There oh, is there a, is. There's only a best for you. Well, that's sort of true about everything in life. Sure. The best for me is the Breville grind and brew. It's beans over here, a thermos down here, 
with a timer. So you could set it to go off at 4.30. You, you know radio has no affiliate fees. You That's know? correct. You're not, you're not getting oh, no. anything kickback. So back, <laughs> back in the day when my blog was on a type pad, uh-huh. before I even knew what affiliate fees were, I did a post called Your Coffee Sucks. And basically it explained why everybody's coffee is bad. You, first of all, you're buying ground beans and then sticking them in the shelf in the cabinet for six months so they stink. You give me your rotten, crappy, mineral-infested water, and you're using a really mediocre coffee maker that doesn't brew for long enough and then burns the coffee on the— So I, I, some of us are very particular about our drugs. So was that—did your post uh, do well in search? Oh, my God, up? it went crazy. Yeah, I have this thing still. I've You mentioned Famoculus, my old blog. I haven't updated it in— you know, eight, nine years probably, but I still get emails from people because uh, it still does pretty well in search. And mm-hmm. I'll get emails from. Uh, Wait, you haven't posted on that in eight years? No. Other than to, like, Your say, book I wrote is a book on there. Yeah, right. other, other than to say, I wrote a book, here's a link to it. I haven't, I haven't been. And you're not it. updating the list of lists? I'm trying to remember. I've stopped doing that about five years ago, too. Wow. Um, it just got too much. That's a lot I, of work. As I told someone on Twitter, I chose life. Like yeah. I, I would have had. That's to, a fair answer. I would have had to hire someone. It got so all-consuming, uh, and even even it was even back in 2005, it was still like a pretty hard thing to do. Um, and now it's impossible. It, it would be do, impossible. It's for one person to do it. It sounds well, like the internet was like somebody needed to index the internet back then. Like there was what, like kind of like a Yahoo-esque kind of quality right. internet back then that somebody could compile everything into a place and that you could you could consume all of you could you could look at everyone's you could look at every list of the best albums of 2006 at one point that was an actual thing one could do then right you, you could, could hunt down the do 62 that. of them now it's millions that's right you could just simply couldn't do it now um that's and, why we have google you don't have to do it anymore Google will provide. It'll just tell you which other. T- the- All hail our overlords, Serge <laughs> and Larry. I, I for one, reckon, uh, uh, welcome our new technology overlords. I am looking forward to living in the future whenever it chooses to arrive. <laughs> I want to talk about uh, your writing and your focus on technology and culture and media because you've written some stuff that I found really, really amusing, including some things that uh, have mocked what I have done, either unwillingly or unwittingly, (laughs) Um, but I'm always amused by that. And one, and this goes back to the recursive nature of your work, where you're always looking for these meta-themes that show up in media, and you start to see the same ideas over and over again. And what what at one point in time might have sounded like a clever idea— when you see a hundred of them, it's like, oh, this is just a nonsense formula, sure. is it? So the one that struck me <laughs> the other day, because I'm guilty of it, X should buy Y. I, got, I thought you were going to point that one out. Well, first, because years ago I wrote a, a terrible column for the Washington Post that Apple should buy Twitter. In hindsight, what an awful idea. But last year I wrote a column, Apple should buy Netflix. And mm-hmm. that turned out to be a great idea because at the time – Netflix was like 60 or 70 million billion dollar market cap. It's now coming up on 180 or something yep. insane. Um and then I did a follow up which is all right, you missed Apple, you missed Twitter, now go buy Disney. I usually don't like those sort of columns, mm-hmm. but every now and then something happens. It's like, you know, the Apple 
video store is not great, and the Twitter, ver- uh, the uh, Netflix version is. So it would make my life easier. By right. the way, everything I write, I don't know if you have this experience. Mm-hmm. Everything I write is for me. And when I say Apple should buy Netflix, it's not because I have a grand vision of the future of technology. That would simply make my life more convenient. Sure. So I don't I don't know how many how many people write like that or write for themselves, but so that cracked me up. What motivated X should buy Y? So uh yeah, it was merely noticing a trope out there, which is uh, a lot of technology business writers. Uh, I f- sometimes feel like they've run out of like tricks. They have to they have some. They have to get three columns in this week, and they have to come up with one. And so they go, "Apple should buy Netflix," and they write that thing. And so I called it "X should buy Y," and I just listed uh, a whole bunch dozens, of dozens, dozens, yes. and it's and y- you realize quickly that this is like. Uh, it's a you know it's a trope or you know if you want to be more negative a gimmick or, it's yeah, a gimmick yeah so when I read media criticism I often say this person doesn't understand the nuance they don't get this they don't get when I read that I immediately said guilty yeah I just like oh I, I'm nailed it, yeah and the the thing about it is like I I could have been very um negative toward the trope at the but I end it with by saying I'm I've I do this on Twitter all the time and the reason that even though I think it is a bit, a little bit of a lazy thing, there is something fascinating by the X should buy Y uh, trope, the, the, that kind of article, is that uh, I think in the article I call it business fanfic because yes. what it allows you to do is kind of project a future in your head. Yes. What would it look like if the Wall Street Journal bought Flipboard? Like that's one of those examples that like people would say you know, five years ago you, there was like a big idea that that somebody should buy Flipboard. And it's like that no no one regrets not having bought Flipboard today, right? Um, or whatever startup. Like there's a lot of the small startups that you hear this set about. Uh, Twitter should buy nuzzle or microsoft should buy github yeah exactly and that'll um, never happen and uh and uh i think that there's like there's kind of a weird value in it because it it allows your your mind to kind of wander and kind of speculate about that future and kind of sort of say to yourself what would it look like if that happened um microsoft buying github is like a, a fascinating one because if you had written it a few years ago it would sounded preposterous right um be, just because of Microsoft's stance toward the open source community, um, but also, like, uh, it, 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 no one would have foreseen the change in how Microsoft has been perceived over the past five, ten years. And New CEO did a lot to change their reputation. Did, did. And, and then some of the other companies like Facebook and Google. Let's don't be evil became a little bit evil. And I think everybody looked at Microsoft with a little... I've always been a negative viewer of Microsoft, and I'm kind of saying, oh, they're all bad guys. Yeah. <laughs> well, Microsoft is taking an interesting thing lately where they're picking companies that are have good reputations. Mm-hmm. And so I, I always kind of thought they would buy Twitter, and that was just going to be... The, the end of Twitter. The worst yeah. outcome because it's it's the wrong company doing it and it's it's mashing up two things that have negative uh, emotions around them. And I'm, I'm really glad for Microsoft that they didn't. I mean, 
I think Twitter's valuable and whatever. I just think it would have been a horrible matching of those two things. Somebody's going to start a new social network, and uh, it could be one of the big platforms. Mm -hmm. um, there will be competition in the next year for Facebook. And whether it's somebody trying to buy something or, or starting from scratch or just something that emerges from nowhere, uh, I think it would be a good time for Google to take a shot at doing a new social network that promises privacy. Um, it's a, it'll be a hefty marketing effort to convince people that Google will make a social network that promises privacy. Um, but I think that would be amazing if they took a shot at the, it. The most interesting aspect of that is if there was a way to, if you if you look at um, how unsuccessful they've been at policing YouTube and coming up with um, sifting out inappropriate things for kids and whatever. Yeah. So I don't know if, if I'm confident that they have an ability to do what Facebook clearly has not shown an ability to do, which is sure. separate real from fake, identify what is valuable and what's not. And not, none of the social networks do that any well. The exception being LinkedIn, because it's people's professional career. There aren't right. a whole lot of hoaxers on LinkedIn right. posting fake jobs. Like that stuff gets found out way too quickly. Yeah, and, and Zuckerberg is not being reassuring. And he says, it will it should take us three years before we uh, have solved this problem. And it's like, three years? What? I have to deal with this most much information for three years? Well, you don't. You don't have to. I mean, you and I are of uh, not that far apart generationally. How often are you on Facebook? I look at it once a day. Really, I, I feel like I'm once a week. Yeah, and I think that's healthier. Yeah. If I could, if I could reduce that to like, I was never a daily user, and when I set up Facebook, I was always astonished at everything they asked. They don't have anything that's accurate about me, except where I work and where I went to college and grad school. Everything else, no, you're not getting my birth date. No, you're not getting. <laughs> no, you're none of that stuff. Why? Why? And yet, everybody voluntarily gives that stuff. Who's your favorite band? I don't know. If you were my wife, you would know that. But you're a for-profit tech company. I have no interest in sharing. I, I don't want you to serve me ads on that. I'm ignoring them anyway. But that I'm that that's me. Let let's talk about um, some of your other columns that I found fascinating, especially in light of the Encyclopedia of Misinformation. Tell us about Steve Wynn's Vermeer. Oh. Uh... What headline, was, this is not a Vermeer. Thank you. I was going to ask what was the headline of that story. Uh, so I, one of the things I'm fascinated with is art forgeries. And uh, I wrote a five-part series about uh, all the different times we've been, been manipulated, uh, all the different ways we are manipulated with art. And one of them is really easy to point toward, which is um, forgeries. And... Uh, that specific column goes through my desire to have a Vermeer. Right. And uh, because who wouldn't want one? There are only, depending on who's counting, 26, 27, 28 Vermeers right. in existence. Well, 25 that we know of, and theoretically... And some, it, that's the thing. Every <laughs> once in a while, there'll be a new one added to the canon. And it's not that somebody has discovered a painting. Usually it's, some, it's that somebody has decided, oh, this thing that, it's, that we've been debating for the past 20, 50 years finally gets led into the canon of uh, allowed official Vermeers. Vermeers. Um, Steve Wynn bought one. Uh, and I think his is fascinating because it was something that was not perceived to be part of official Vermeerdom uh, until he bought it and then it became so. And what 
it's an interesting case because it it's like saying the 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 verifying fact of art is not its historical veracity or any kind of uh, analysis on it or yeah it has nothing to do with that it really has to do is did somebody pay the money to make it right. worth it so someone spent what do you spend 30 million dollars yep. on a vermeer of questionable uh provenance is that yes. a fair description that's right and is it now considered a real vermeer it is it's because somebody spent so much money on it there he was blessed no, it with 30 million dollars there was no there was no new historical analysis done on it there was no no new uh scientific work done on it mm-hmm. it was that somebody paid that amount and now it has to be and uh did you track the recent uh da vinci with the um what was it the museum in Somewhere, Abu Dhabi or... Yeah. So so essentially, they figured out something that was of previously uncertain provenance and came to the conclusion it's legit and then paid an ungodly amount of money for yeah, it. Yeah, and that's a fascinating case because I think that that Christ painting uh, that was most Da Vinci people did not think was real, I bet in 50 years that will be the Mona Lisa. I really believe that history is going to reevaluate it and it's going to and be, because it's become the most valuable painting of all time right. that must mean that it's not only a da vinci but it's uh important and that it is deserving of of investigation and it's it's even suddenly more mysterious it's more artful it's like all it's full of all kinds of new value just because somebody wrote a big check for it um, and I, th- I think that's a fascinating thing with the art world. Um, and that, that specific story, what I did was um, I decided that I want, wanted my own Vermeer. And there's this thing in China, or many, many of these in China, uh, hundreds of these companies where you can order whatever painting you want off the Internet. And it's, it's literally a painted forgery stroke for stroke on the original one. Exactly right. And... Uh, by some estimates, there's like 20,000 people that are employed doing this all day long uh, in two specific regions of China. And uh, it's a lot of Westerners saying, uh, I have a favorite painting. Please make it for 100 bucks and send it to me. And, really? And it shows up. And so There's a Rothko I'm very interested in. Yeah. I would pay 100 bucks for a Rothko. And you, you, you could put it up and... Uh, only a handful of your friends might be able to notice that it's not real and maybe not even them. (laughs) Do you remember the story about the Jackson Pollock um, that supposedly was given to his girlfriend and its provenance has been questioned and, and it was up for sale some time ago and I think it was... There was a silly number, like fifty thousand dollars. Is it worth it to roll the be- the dice right. on fifty thousand dollars for what could ultimately be worth fifty million dollars? Yeah, that, that that sounds like a good bet, right? How did it turn out? I don't know. I, I don't. I don't think it's ever been resolved, and there was an issue uh, with I think it was her estate as to what to do with this. Mm. Um, in the New York Times some time ago. Can you stick around a bit? I have so many more questions for you. Sure. We have been speaking with Rex Sorgatz, author of the Encyclopedia of Misinformation. If you enjoy this conversation, we'll be sure and stick around and check out our podcast extras where we keep the tape running and continue to discuss all things misinformation like... We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at Bloomberg. 
Bloomberg.net. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. You can check out my daily column at Bloomberg.com. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast. Rex, thanks so much for doing this. Mm -hmm. During the break, we were talking about some of the ideas in the book and how you want to get them out into the firmament. And we were talking about podcasts and, and radio. Tell us what you're thinking in terms of setting doing a podcast because you've done pretty much everything else in media. Yeah. I, you know what I didn't say during the broadcast? You were a producer at, was it MSNBC? MSNBC.com. Yeah. yeah. How, how did that work out? Um, it was all right. I was I was there for a couple of years. This was back when uh, uh, MSNBC.com was in Seattle. Uh, mm -hmm. People for people forget that the MS and MSNBC Microsoft. was originally Microsoft. Sure. Uh, was this a Michael Kinsley joint originally? It, or it was originally yes. Uh, I came in after he had been had left, but um, as was Slate. Slate was a Kinsley yep. Microsoft venture. Yep, and. Uh, they, yeah, eventually they packed up, eventually NBC bought back right. their, the Microsoft part, and there is no such thing as a um, division of MSNBC inside of Seattle, right. inside of Redmond anymore, as there once was, and that's where I worked. Out of, out of Seattle? Yeah. Which is a, a real interesting town. I've been to that Microsoft campus, and uh -huh. it's astonishing. It's like yeah. a giant college campus. Yeah, it's... Uh, I think I was too young to enjoy Seattle. Uh, I think I'd love it now. Um, but it was like, Seattle was felt to me like a town of um, middle managers. Like, there was a lot of project managers at Amazon huh. and project managers at Starbucks and project sure. managers at T-Mobile and Boeing. And there was all of these companies, very successful companies, interesting places to work. But it was like a town where everyone was a project manager who wanted to be a vice president. That was my attitude about the place at the time, that it was – I didn't feel like there was a lot of – innovation there which is strange to say for a town that's considered sure. a technical hub right um and i look back on that and i think ah, that's that's actually just mostly my youthful arrogance like it was a fine <laughs> it was actually a fine town i and i was i was just not like i was i was too youthful and party-ish at that time to really enjoy it now i go back and all of the people who i thought of as like uh you know middle management are are actually those VPs or EVPs now of those places and they're fascinating. I don't know what my problem was. <laughs> so, you know, Seattle and Portland for that matter are places where I visit fairly regularly and wherever I go, I always say to myself, could I live in this part of the country, you know, permanently, not just for a couple of years? Um Seattle is really a, a it's on fire. It's yeah. a, it's a hopping as is Portland. I mean, you can pretty much work your way down the coast, and just about every city yeah. is is booming. But Portland's another one of those cities where, gee, who 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 knew that this town is just exploding? Yeah. And I, I find that fascinating. Yeah, uh, I bought when I moved to Seattle in two thousand five. Uh, I bought a condo, and by two thousand seven. 
I was leaving. And by that time, the real estate market was falling apart. So I kept it because it was like everything was crumbling. Right. And I thought, this is going to be the worst investment I've ever made. So did you double your and money or triple your money? more than triple now. Wow. I still have it. And of course, now it's Amazon has moved, since moved downtown. I bought a place downtown, and Amazon has since moved their headquarters the down there. The new HQ is amazing. Yeah. And now it's like, oh, this real accident thing that I bought is actually <laughs> going to turn out to be one of the wisest investments I ever had to had. Right. So never um, confuse brains with the bull market, be yeah. it stocks or real estate, is, is absolutely true. Yep. So are you out there often? Do you visit your place or are you renting it? Uh, I rent it out. Um, to a continual parade of uh, Amazon employees who want to, want to live nearby their new headquarters. Uh, and so you're going to hold on to this for a while. Yeah, forever Th- probably. That, that's, uh, that's pretty funny. Um, so what else didn't we get to that I wanted to talk about? Some, some of your columns, um, we discussed uh, the Jackson Pollock I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Uh, a- after I read that story, I, I show it to my wife who teaches fashion illustration and design. Mm-hmm. And uh, she goes, oh, there, you could take a class in t- painting like Jackson Pollock. Like, what? Yeah, they offer whatever. Go go sign up for that if you really want a Jackson Pollock. You don't have to spend fifty grand. It's Pollock. You can do it yourself. <laughs> okay, so we sign up for this class. It gets canceled last minute, and we never redid it. But I would like to hang a, a big Jackson Pollock. Um, the hard part is his signature. The rest of it isn't isn't that difficult. Well, to, there's a uh, famous instance of forgery out there of a Pollock that. Uh, was revealed to uh, have have been a forgery because the misspelled Jackson Pollock. <laughs> that's always a clue when you get the artist's name wrong. That that's never a, uh, a never a good sign. So I wanted to talk more about the book a little bit. What surprised you most when you were doing the research about this? Because there are some kind of interesting entries in here. Yeah, I guess. Um, I think I. Th- it isn't even actually what surprised me. The, there's all kinds of interesting ideas in it. The the biggest surprise is actually what happened outside of the book. Uh-huh. Uh, I was halfway done with the book, writing the book, when um, we had an election and uh, Trump got elected. So this and- was – you started this book – so my assumption – in a book where Trump really is not mentioned by name, I think you said he's in one footnote. He's in a footnote. But. That my assumption was that this was pushback to his presidency, not that you specifically reference him yeah. in any way, shape, or form, but it's just sort of like this is what grifters have done since the beginning of time, and here's a million examples of it. Yeah, so the the quick story is that it was originally titled, it was sold to the publisher as the Encyclopedia of Fakery. And that's a little bit more playful title, mm-hmm. uh, and the 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 subject matter was a little bit more, mm, I'd say, aesthetics, culture, society, and it wasn't so. It wasn't a very serious book, mm-hmm. and I would say that the the book you're holding now is not also not a super serious book, but it it took on a graver tone when halfway through writing it, um, we had a brand new president, and all of a sudden it was like. The entire idea that knowledge is uh, socially constructed, or that it's that what we know is up for grabs, that kind of like that, which is a, a, a kind of a glib reaction to living in this society that's like 
over over mediated. Uh, what do we know? We don't know anything. That kind of attitude suddenly became grave. And I realized like, oh, I have to make this thing more serious. And so that was the biggest change is that all of a sudden I had to introduce a lot more social science into it. Um, so there's things like um, the backfire effect and filter bubble and these, these topics that are much more from psychology and sociology uh, that uh, tried, try more to get to the underlying concepts of misinformation. I, my favorite word of the past decade has to be agnotology, which is culturally constructed ignorance. Go back to people, um, the, the tobacco executives, mm -hmm. more recently climate change deniers. Uh, anybody who has an interest in the truth not getting out there, uh, if you have enough resources, if you have enough time, energy, money, we learned recently in the book Bad Blood and Theranos, yeah. they were they were kind of trying to do the same thing. Um, if you have enough money and enough willingness to gaslight a yep. nation, you could create an alternative set of facts, and there are people who will unfortunately believe things that aren't true yep. to someone else's advantage. It's, yeah. it's astonishing. The I like the my definition for agnotology in the book. It's uh, the science of creating stupidity. And uh, what's interesting about it is yes. that it's not – when you think of propaganda, you tend to think that it's like uh, an attempt to convince someone of an argument, right? And it's through various means that you're trying to argue a, a point of view and eventually they'll adopt it. And what's interesting about the agnotology – stuff that is especially around the uh, tobacco companies, um, some big oil, uh, but especially what we learned around tobacco was that the, it wasn't that um, the tobacco companies made an attempt to fill the information space with like corrective analysis. Like it wasn't trying, there was no like scientific studies done. It was actually just like continually bombarding it over and over and over and over again with more and more and more and more information. And so it became like this endless thing where anything that you believed you could find a resource for that would saying that thing. And there's a lesson there that we're going through right now, which is um, any belief that you have, you can Google it and you will find someone on the internet who has the similar belief. And, uh, and if you don't want to find contradictory evidence for it, you don't have to. Um, that's a big problem we're going through right now, and I think that, in some ways, that tobacco, those tobacco lawsuits, they the 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 science of the, creating stupidity that that those researchers developed, some of which are real powerful, well known mm -hmm. psych uh, sociologists of the day, uh, is coming back to haunt us. The the my favorite line, and I'm, I'm trying to remember where I pulled this from, um, tobacco companies sell two things: cigarettes and doubt. Yeah. And that's really quite fascinating. Let me jump to my favorite questions. This is what we ask all of our guests. Tell us the most important thing people don't know about your background. I was having dinner with my wife last night, and I casually mentioned that I was once a Flash developer. Uh-huh. And uh, Flash the software. Flash the software as in those like Flash games sure. and little interactives and eventually video is what it became known for and it which is hard to it's almost gone from the internet sure. now it's being expunged well, uh, once I, apple killed support for it that was the beginning of the end that was the beginning of it. so 
Uh, and my, it was, it's funny that my, my own wife who I've been married to for two years did not know this about me. Um, I don't know if that's important. I think it's funny that, uh, for years I did this job that is now completely (laughs) defunct. Going away. (laughs) Might as well be a steam engine fitter. Um, tell us about your early mentors who helped you, uh, along with your career. Um, I think I, you know, I grew up in very rural North Dakota and there I when I was growing up, I didn't know anyone who I didn't know anyone who went to college. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, really, I, I this, that's weird to say. What What is the prime economy in North? I, I assume some farming. All farming. All, All farming. farming. Yeah, my graduating class was twenty seven people, twenty five of whom were farmers. Wow, um, and maybe twenty three of whom st- still are farmers. Um, and so I, I, I growing up, I didn't. I didn't have role models, really. I mean, there are uh-huh. people that I admired. Uh, I had a really great English teacher, Mr. Oleg. I guess that's who I'd say is my my mentor in some ways, um, just because, you know, he really encouraged me. But I grew up in a place where I didn't have, like, a, uh, like access to a lot of outside information. And when I said, like, I didn't know anyone who went to college, I really, like, I, I, I didn't know anyone who went to, like, the University of Minnesota, which would right. have been, like, the big school still it's still eight hours away but it would have been probably the big state school to go to more much less did i know anyone who went to harvard you know yeah. i would have like blown my mind so when i started to go to decide to go to college i it just never would have occurred to me that i would go to like any of those places ever in my life so you applied to university of minnesota i i didn't because that that seemed like impossible I, I applied to the university of north dakota north dakota which okay. was actually uh, five hours away, and it's the furthest that my mind could imagine going, and it's the furthest that anyone that I ever knew went. And it it's still in state, but it was five hours away, and it seemed like it seemed like I was pushing boundaries by doing that. Really, that that's fascinating. So, as a Jewish kid growing up in Long Island, uh-huh. forget college. It was a given. I was going to law school. I was five, <laughs> and I was pretty much told, "Yeah, you'll be going to law school or medical school." That. There was never any sort of, well, if you want to go to college, you can. If not, here, here are your other career options. It was pretty much, hey, we'll see how smart you are. Maybe you'll get into medical school. And if you can't, well, we can always use another lawyer. It was never – that. that's fascinating that – and yet you you go to North Dakota. What was your experience like there? Uh, UND, the University of North Dakota, is it's pretty typical big state school. You know, mm-hmm. twelve thousand students. It's probably it's probably bigger than than what you when you hear the name that it probably is. It I don't think it was any different from going to like, you know, University of Michigan or Ann Arbor or right. or uh, any of the big football powerhouse. Yeah, I don't, it's it's it was a pretty typical big state school, and it was it was a transformative thing for me because suddenly, um. Just wildly more diversity, but the big was thing it was, all North Dakotans, or was it a little more national reach? It's probably about eighty percent North Dakotans, ten percent Minnesotans, something like that. Mm-hmm. And then, um, but uh, the big thing was that you know when I was in high school, there was no outside media, uh-huh. and so I my high school library was the only thing. There was no. In library in town. There was the high school library is the only access to external information. This is obviously pre-internet. Right. And the library had three magazines, um, Sports Illustrated, uh, Time, Newsweek. Wow. And uh, one daily newspaper, 
um, the Bismarck Tribune, which had just it was basically a couple local stories and some AP articles. Other than that, I didn't know what was going on in the world. I had, we had the three networks, but no cable. Right. Um, and so I I didn't know any popular music. And when I went to college, I suddenly discovered the Cars and the Pixies and the sure. Cure and every band that begins with the that I had never. Not only had I, had I never heard before. I never could have heard before because it was not on the radio, and I didn't. I didn't go to record stores. I didn't even. I would have to travel forever to go to a record store. No local Tower Records. In no, no, where no, you no. grew up. No. So college really was like uh, an eye-opening thing to me, and I loved it. And I, and I ended up staying there for probably too long because I was like, "This is great." I just sit around and learn stuff. So, how long were you in college for? Like six and a half years. I got oh, that's a, a, I was five years. So yeah. you're you're worse than me. I got I got a few degrees. I started I started pre med. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I studied everything like Latin and first all the sciences, and then I got really interested in philosophy and literature. And by the time I was done, I remember uh, going to my advisor and him saying. I think that you probably have taken more classes than anyone ever here. <laughs> and I, I I would like to actually go back and look. I bet that's probably true. Um, I got three majors and two minors, and I, I would have stayed forever if I could. If you knew me at, like, 23, you would have guessed. There's, it's impossible this person is not going to be a college professor because, like, that's just, like, what I loved. And whenever I run into someone who says they don't, they didn't like college, I just go, "Why? It's the best thing in the world. You just right. sit around and read books and talk about them. I, why, how could you not like that?" <laughs> I, I, speaking of books, tell us about some of your favorite books. Um, I think I, I'm going to name a weird book that influenced my book. Uh huh. Um, do you remember this book, early '80s, called? Uh, Girdle Escher Bach. I swear to God, I knew you were going to say that. Oh, okay. I swear to God that that was on the tip of my tongue. That so, book is sitting on the top shelf uh, of my bookshelf in my office at home, and I am due to reread it. Yeah. Because it's all about the recursive nature of, yes. of music, of mathematics, um, it, and, and of art. Yeah. And those three, I, I'm just... I almost was going to volunteer that, <laughs> but I'm just um, Douglas Hofstadter. Yes. Wow. So he, I, th- I think that book's fascinating because, uh, for a lot of reasons. One, it has no single point. Like today, if you're going to write a book, you have to make a pitch that you can come up with in two sentences, probably too long. But you have to say precisely what this thing. The is. The elevator pitch. Yes, and it has to be. It has to be tight. And especially, I think, in the idea, in the space of like idea books, whether they're marketing or business or whatever, it has to be so kind of like you're going to drill this point home over and over and again. Um, Gödel Escher Bach was this, it's, I guess, a book of philosophy, but also psychology, but also like it had plays and it had all of this like random assemblage of stuff. And it never really tried to talk you into anything and there's not enough books like that and i think of my book in the same way is that i'm more interested in like playing around with ideas and experimenting and like and not trying to talk you into any specific point of view but just to like give you a space to kind of like let your mind wander and it's a little more atmospheric i guess Mm -hmm. um and so i love that's why i love that book is that it 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 doesn't ever browbeat you 
and it's also just like it's so many random things like it's like here's an essay about mc escher's paintings and then here's like a dialogue between between tortoise a tortoise and achilles on a hill and it's just this like weird collection of stuff I, I had that assigned in college and the thing that makes it a coherent whole is that theme that runs yeah. through everything of the the self-replicating self-repeating nature of mathematics and art and music and theoretically everything else. Yes. Uh, it's a fascinating book. He had another book out after that. The Mind's Eye? Yes, which yeah. is another really interesting, more philosophical book. Yeah. Um, and not quite as um, esoteric. Is that is that the right word? Yeah. But uh, he's a fascinating writer. Give, give us more. What other books? Uh, not that you really – that one book is enough to keep most people occupied for a long time. Uh, I'll give an off-subject one. So, something has nothing to do with my book, but it's always been something I've loved. Um, it's a uh, it's, uh, probably more obscure. Um, do you remember? Oh, I, sh- I shouldn't use past tense. This person's living. Do you know uh, the architect Rem Koolhaas? Uh, the name is certainly familiar. He's a he's, he fits in that category of star architect. Like when there was mm-hmm. that emergence of people in the '90s, that was like they became the star architects. Uh-huh. We're, we're in the Bloomberg Building right now, and I would not be surprised if he had some influence on this right. kind of thing. Um, well, he wrote a book in oh maybe like '95 called Delirious New York, uh-huh. and it's a history of New York City, but it's written in a specific time when you could write a book that allowed you to use really poetic language. And I, I say the word poetic with some hesitation because that makes it sound like, you know, flighty or something. But it was a book about a theory that posited New York exists this way because of this set of systems. And the specific system he was interested in was the grid. And the, and once you start to see the city through the lens of how he sets it up, which is um, the innovation of New York is the grid and it's the innovation of America, you kind of go, oh, wow, this is really interesting. And he writes it in a very, um, I'll again use the same adjective, poetic way that is like it's not um, uh, it's not making a grand argument. It's simply like letting you understand a way to think about New York City. Delirious New York, a retroactive manifesto for Manhattan. Great book. Anything else or are we going to leave it with those two, both of which I think can keep people busy for quite some time? Um, I read a lot of Jonathan Swift while writing this book just Uh because he was the the satirist of of lore that is so important to our times. I have an entry about A Modest Proposal, and I went back and read – uh, the Modest Proposal again for the first time. Brilliant stuff. Um, but he also did a series of uh, essays on politics that uh, are highly relevant to our time um, called The Art of Political Lying. Uh, I really <laughs> recommend them. Art of Political Lying. All right, we'll, we'll make a note of that. So since you started uh, your blog way back when, what do you think is the most significant thing that changed uh, for better or worse in, in terms of uh, blogging and and media. Oh, uh, you know, I, I a researcher called me yesterday and asked me uh, a bunch of questions about internet and media technologies. And the the final question was, "What are you excited about today?" That's my next question. Oh what shoot! Well, I'll merge these two together. And it was, "What are you excited about?" And I sat there and thought, I 
don't have an answer. Like, mm-hmm. if it had been on radio, there would have been dead air. Right. I I was like, in my head, do, do I want to say Bitcoin? Do I want to say virtual no. reality? Do I? And I was like, I don't have an answer. And I think that it's because I grew up in an era where we were making um, uh, consumer-facing products, and more and more the startup world and the media world looks uh, B2B mm-hmm. um, marketplaces. And it, it, all of things that have value but they're just way less interesting to me. And so I have a really hard time getting excited about consumer technology uh, at all right now. Uh, That's interesting. The things that I the things that I get excited about are strangely have gone to the completely other side and it's content, right? Mm-hmm. Netflix got really effing good, right? Like TV got good, um, podcasts got good. I don't know where it came from, but all of a sudden, like... I wished I had made a choice a few years ago and moved to L.A. and entered into the entertainment space, a decision I never would have made five years ago, but I kind of wish I had because it's exciting right now to be in that world. But you don't have to be in L.A. That's the beauty of the technology. You could do a podcast from anywhere. (laughs) We happen to be in a radio studio in a media building, but I have uh, one of the guys in my office does a podcast they Skype, it's him and somebody who's in Michigan, yeah. Animal Spirits, Michael Batnick. They basically do this using really inexpensive technology. Yeah. It's a it's a it's a, a radio. He ended up getting a, a fixed mic because it sounded better. And they use um, either Skype or a direct line. So yeah. the quality of both sides audio is really good and you end up with it's amazing what you could do even with very, very inexpensive technology. So yeah. you wouldn't have had to move to LA. Yeah, for podcasting, I wouldn't have had to move. But to be to get television, TV, TV yes, I would have had for to. For sure. Um, podcasting is interesting because it is. I mean, New York is sort of the hub, but it's way more dispersed. It's all around the country that mm-hmm. things are going on. Uh, what do you do for fun? Uh, if... Uh, if I could, if I could do anything in the world, it would be to like disappear into a cabin somewhere with a guitar and and write songs that uh-huh. and put them on a four track and have no one ever hear them. <laughs> that sounds like fun. Uh, that's what I that's what I do for fun is I uh, record so- songs at home um, that I. I have no. It sounds like I'm an aspiring performer. I have no desire to perform or have people hear it. Uh, I do it only for myself, uh, and so that's fun. That 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 does sound like fun. Uh, tell us about a time you failed and what you learned from the experience. Um, well, I was in startups for a long time, so those are nothing but failures over mm-hmm. and over again. Uh, and so I could tell lots of stories there. So you don't have any early Facebook stock? Is that what you're saying? I don't. Uh, I mean, I had, I had some successes, and so I'm things I'm proud of, um, and products we made. But uh, but but everyone who's done startups has like more. Even the successful people have nine stories of failure. Sure. Um, I think this. I think the story I tell though is that. Um, do you know I got sued by Garrison Keeler? No. So formerly uh, of Lake Wobegon, Lake and, Wobegon. and NPR yeah. and. Uh, I think he kind of uh, ran into a little trouble. Actually. He has he has been in trouble recently. He's on a list of uh, men that seem to be involved in nefarious activities. <laughs> um, so why did why did he sue you? This is a while ago, uh, over ten years ago, uh, back in the blogging era, 
uh, I started a, I used to live in Minneapolis and I started a website called MinSpeak, which was basically a, it was like kind of like a local Reddit, I guess. Like uh-huh. it was like you posted links and you talked about them and it was a community site. It was a community news site and it was pretty popular. And I did a marketing campaign for the site that was a bunch of t-shirts. Uh-huh. Um, and we made t-shirts that said things like, it was like an outline of Minnesota and it said land of 10,000 fakes. Uh, rather than lakes, right? right? It was like little pun T-shirts, and one of the T-shirts was um, "Prairie Ho Companion." That's hilarious. Yeah, I thought it was funny too. Uh, I had 150 of them printed up. Um, they sold out within six months, and about a year and a half after that, <laughs> I got a letter from Keeler's lawyer with a cease and desist on it, saying, "Please stop selling these." Uh, no, I actually didn't say please, but it said stop <laughs> selling these. Now, now, isn't parody fair use for something like that? It's clearly it's, parody. It seems really strange that one of America's leading satirists would be out trying to sue someone for poking fun at him. It, just, it, it seemed absurd, right? So uh, here's the thing. I wanted to give the guy the benefit of the doubt. So I called the lawyer at this name that was listed at the bottom. Right. And I said, listen, your client is making a mistake. If you pursue this thing, here's all I'm going to do. I'm going to scan in this two-page cease and desist. Post I'm gonna, it. I'm going to put it on the internet, and I'm going to write on there about like this conversation I'm having, and I'm going to tell everybody how absurd it is that this is happening, That, uh, and, I, and I'm going to ask for help for like First Amendment defense because I'm not going to defend it myself, and I'm going to get it, and I'm going to win. And I'm going to make your client look like a fool. And the lawyer was like, are you threatening me, Mr. Sorgatz? And I was like, no, I'm not threatening. I'm just telling you that's what's going to yeah, happen. Here are my cards <laughs> on the table. <laughs> I'm, my, yeah. I'm sharing my strategy <laughs> yeah. with you. I'm saying, don't pursue this. No one's going to know. I'm not, I don't have any T-shirts left. I don't know why you're doing this. I'm not selling this T-shirt anymore. Just, I don't, I don't want to make a big deal out of it. And he's like, well, I'll talk to my client. And ten days, ten days later, he called back and he said, uh, "My client wishes to pursue this lawsuit." And I was like, "Oh man, you're asking for it!" And so I did exactly that. I, I, I basically put the conversation that I had with him on, on, and I scanned the two pages. And it was the biggest thing on the internet that day. That's awesome. Um, it went viral like crazy because both people from the left and the right liked it. It was the top link on Drudge. Andrew Sullivan wrote a column about it. All of like the bloggers of that day were like, uh, it was a big deal for them. Like people like uh, I don't know, Matthew Iglesias, like the kind of sure. like the first generation of yeah. of internet people were all about it and up in an uproar. And uh, it got six hundred comments and. The ACLU called, the Stanford Law School called, and said they wished to defend me in this, in this Exactly thing. what you yes, predicted. Exactly. And, uh, and when then did I, they call back and say, all right, we're willing to let this go? Well, I, that's what I thought was going to happen. I just let it sit there and let it sit there. And I thought to myself, I could pursue this. I really could. And I have the right to, right? This is a... F- First, clear First Amendment right. thing, and I'm going to win. Like Ready whatever, and it, 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 there's a principle here. But I pod- you should reissue that shirt. I could. I should, this would be a great time to do it because he's yeah. not suing anyone now. Right. <laughs> um, and I didn't. I didn't pursue it. And I look back on it. And I think I made the right choice, but I'm not sure. But here's why. I thought, do I really want to have this thing that I become a person who's who's litigated? For even if I'm right, that I'm litigated for using the word "ho" 
<laughs> and I was like, I, is that really something I want to defend? Um, on a on a instant constitutional basis, I for sure do. But on a like personal level, is that something that I really care about? That was a very mature decision. So I decided not to do it, even though I know I'm in the right. That's hilarious. That worked out well. Um, what sort of advice would you give a uh, millennial or recent graduate who is thinking about going into fill-in-the-blank, content production, web design, uh, media, writing? What what advice would you give someone right out of college? Um, I I have to give advice that's kind of based on my experience again, and that, that is, again, kind of growing up in the middle of nowhere. And if I went back and gave, like, a graduation speech to kids in where I grew up, I would try as hard as I possibly could to convey to them this really simple notion that I think most millennials feel, but they probably don't feel where I grew up, and that is you really can do anything. It sounds so simple and kind of almost trite to say you can do anything. Right. But it's not a thing I believed. No one I was no way I thought I could do anything. And it wasn't it was it wasn't until deep into college that I thought I could do anything. And there's all sort that's my first thing I would say is like you really it doesn't matter. You can do anything. And the second thing is, whatever your interest is, you will find a job or a career or perhaps fortune around the thing. Like, I'll give a, a quick example. One of my one of my favorite areas of interest in college was linguistics, mm-hmm. and because it's a mix of science and art, and it was like kind of like the perfect thing for me. And I I didn't pursue it um, professionally because I thought no one really has careers in linguistics. Are you going to be a speech pathologist? Are you going to be? Today, Steven Pinker. Yeah. Google is so deeply in need of linguists. Every tech company is. And I think that you wouldn't have foreseen that then. And uh, and I think that you can name almost anything. I think that you'll find that eventually there will be an emerging, you can own that category. And um, that's like a, that sounds like a, idealistic early internet person like because there was a lot of rhetoric around the early internet that if you if you you care about tivos you can write a blog about tivos and it'll be successful uh and it was like for years it was um you could whatever your passion is you will find an audience for it i think that's still true though it's like one of the pieces of the um utopian internet that i still believe in is that like if you're passionate about something, you will find people in an audience for it, and you can be known as the expert in that thing. And our final question: What is it that you know about writing and content production today that you wish you knew 20 years ago when you were first starting? Um, <laughs> uh, I wish I knew, I wish I would have bought Apple, <laughs> and I wish I would have taken Trump seriously. All right. That, that's a uh, fair enough uh, point. We have been speaking with Rex Sorgatz. He is the author of The Encyclopedia of Misinformation. If you enjoy this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, Bloomberg.com, Stitcher, Overcast, wherever your finer podcasts are sold. And you can see any of the other 200 or so uh, such podcasts that we've done previously. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net. I would be remiss if I did not thank our crack staff who helps put these podcasts together each week. Medina Parwana is my producer. Taylor Riggs is our booker. Atika Valbrun is our project manager. 
Uh, Michael Batnick is my head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.